The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Funding for the Capital Weekly Podcast is provided by the California Endowment and by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I'm joined by Tim Foster. Hello. And by Caitlin Vega, our special guest, who is the legal director of the United Food and Commercial Workers Western States Council. And we're going to chat today about issues involving politics and unions and labor and the ballot. Welcome, Caitlin. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So I I guess the hot issue this year, um, labor-wise, was has been AB5 and now the repeal uh, the attempt to get rid of it, Proposition 22. So what can you tell us about that? Well, I think that the importance of this proposition and this fight really can't be overstated. Um, you know, there was a decision that came down from the state Supreme Court two years ago uh, that really extended basic rights to most workers in the economy. And that was the decision in the Dynamics case that was codified in AB5. Um the, the gig companies basically decided that they um, should have their own special set of labor laws uh, that exempt their workforce from the laws that apply to most other companies in California. Um, and they are betting that $180 million will buy them a new set of laws. Um, I think that that's problematic for the future of labor law, um, but also I think it really threatens the democratic process in the way that these decisions are made. Um, You had the judicial branch weigh in, you had the legislative branch weigh in, um, signed by the governor and uh, upheld in the courts. And so really, I think the threat is, can big money buy you out of the rules and regulations that everyone else has to live with? And is that a democratic system Um, And how can workers ever compete if that's the way that we're going to uh, draft labor protections? Have there been attempts uh, over the years to uh, try to organize uh, Uber and Lyft workers, for example, and others, of course, are involved in this uh, repeal effort. But are are they organizable from from the union standpoint? Or is that the whole point, that they can't get in there and talk to them? There are legal restrictions? So I think both things are true. There have been um, incredible organizing efforts by the drivers themselves. There's an old saying, the best organizer is a bad boss. And so, you know, the conditions that drivers have lived under for the past few years where they've seen their pay dramatically cut, um, deactivations without any due process, those have created an environment where drivers have been really at the forefront of fighting for greater legal protections and also for the right to be in a union and have that collective power with their employer. So there there have been very inspiring organizing efforts all around the state, lots of different groups of workers with different unions on their own, without unions, lots of great efforts. On the flip side, independent contractors don't have the right to join unions. And that's how the misclassification of those workers, calling them contractors, when they don't really have any of the freedoms or economic realities of being their own business, um, has kind of given them the worst of both worlds. They don't have any 
true independence and control. They can't change their rates. They can't decide the way that they will operate um, like a true independent business. And yet they don't have the legal protections that employees have, including the right to organize, which really makes it um, very hard to figure out how to improve your working conditions. Right. And if if they try to organize, that's technically, that's price fixing. Exactly. It's an antitrust violation. I mean, it's, it's, that's the crazy world that, you know, misclassification has been around a long time, long before the app companies. And we saw this, you know, in particular in the trucking industry where, uh, you know, many, many attempts by um, port truck drivers and other kinds of truck drivers who were misclassified uh, were met with accusations of, you know, antitrust violations when really you're taking a group of low-wage immigrant workers seeking to improve their lives. They are nothing like, you know, big companies conspiring to price fix, but, you know, that's, that's the state of the law and that's why um, fighting misclassification is so important. Do you think any, uh, Caitlin, I mean, you've been doing union organizing since you were a teenager, amazingly enough, and your, um, your dad was a member of the laborers union. Yes. And you've been in Sacramento uh, or covering issues like this, advocating for labor issues for 15 years, I think. Um, that's a lot of time. So you're into labor. So I'm wondering if what happens here with Prop 22 will have any, will, will serve as a template for other labor-related issues, for example, organizing other kinds of employees uh, or making it harder or easier to do that. Is this a one-off or does this have impact on other labor issues that you folks care about? I think it has incredibly broad implications. I mean, I, I would start with, you know, the premise of Prop 22 is that if you hire a worker through an online app, they somehow deserve a, a different set of rights and lesser rights than a worker hired in any other manner. And that to me is such a dangerous proposition that um, the, the type of technology used is more important than the economic reality of the, the worker's own um, life and the fact that they are dependent on a company for income, that they may work full time, that they don't have control. This idea that technology trumps all of those traditional factors is one that you know is not going to be limited to any particular industry, and so um, the first thing I would say is that you know the the idea of app-based workers um, deserving lesser lesser protections than other workers is one that could have a really dramatic impact throughout our economy on lots of different kinds of workers. There was an article I saw yes uh, last week that was like the the Uber for evictions about misclassified gig workers being um, hired to go uh, to go serve eviction notices, which is kind of like a horrifying combination of um, so many of the, you know, implications of inequality that we see right now. But really, there is a quote unquote Uber for everything. And so um, if the if it stands that the use of an app gets you out of labor laws, why would any employer not move to an app based model and get a cheaper workforce? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I do think that the organizing of gig workers um, is an inspiration to workers across the board. I think that you take a group that is actually the, you know, faces the greatest obstacles in trying to organize because they do not even have the legal right to organize um, until they're able to challenge their misclassification. 
And yet they are organizing and they are doing, I mean, they, they helped to pass AB5. They're doing incredible work um, against the proposition. They're doing, you know, caravans all around the state and town halls and phone banking other drivers. And um, all of that, I think, is a, a an inspiration to workers in many other sectors where they, um, you know, have struggled to to get a voice at work and to have power on the job. Um, and so I do think that this fight, you know, it, it could go, it, it can have broad implications in either direction, some very scary ones around the future of work, but also some very inspiring lessons that, you know, every worker deserves rights. Every worker deserves the chance to be part of a union and have a say in the conditions of their life. Um, since, you know, most of us spend most of our time uh, at the job, um, you know, every worker deserves the right to help determine what those working conditions will be. And if these drivers can do it, um, any worker can, I think is kind of the, the inspirational uh, takeaway from this struggle. You know, aside from, um, from Prop 22, there are a couple others that uh, you folks have taken a real interest in. One of them is um, changing Proposition 13 of 1978. Yes. Uh, the tax, the, the uh, Howard uh, Jarvis, Paul Gann initiative. That's Prop 16, and this would change the way residential property is taxed vis-a-vis commercial property. It basically is a split rule, among right. other things, but it's a split rule pretty much. The other issue is repealing Proposition 209. That was the Ward Connerly's uh, initiative of some years back uh, regarding uh, use of race and ethnicity in uh, admissions at, the, and at colleges and universities and contracts, public contracting. Can you chat a little bit about those two? Absolutely. So I will, as I, as I like to do, I will go back a few decades and say that we have seen a trend, um, you know, definitely the decline of unionization as we've seen, you know, shifts in the economy, whether it's relying on misclassified workers, subcontracting um, so that workers are in a bunch of different, work for a bunch of different contract agencies and aren't able to organize together to improve their conditions, um, deregulation, uh, many of these trends that have resulted in the decline of union density. And as union density has declined, we have seen an incredible surge of income inequality. Um, and, you know, uh, the very few possessing um, incredible resources and paying a much lesser uh, share, um, you know, in terms of revenue. Their, their tax burden has gone down as they have accumulated wealth. At the same time, workers have, um, you know, seen, I mean, in many industry, there were many industries that were like trucking, a good uh, middle-class job at a certain point where now we have, um, you know, conditions that have been likened to um, involuntary servitude at the ports where their workers are more indebted to their employer um, than they make out of the job. Um, And so all of these, you know, indicators of, of really broad inequality, I think, have brought us here. And so this election is kind of, to me, this ballot is so much about what kind of a state um, and a country and an economy we want to have and be. And are we content with um, this level of uh, income inequality and suffering 
and poverty and homelessness um, that we see all around us these days. And so I would say, you know, Prop 15 is such a fundamentally fair approach to trying to um, make sure that that uh, big business pays its fair share um, so that we have the resources for everything that we need um, as a state. Uh, and, you know, most essentially for, for our schools and for our local communities, for the essential services um, to address the fire dangers, uh, to address the COVID pandemic. Um, and so, you know, I think that's that's why we are so supportive of Prop 15. Um, and then Prop 16 is really about trying to um, challenge the systemic racism that I think the era of Prop 209 and Prop 226, which, you know, I fought against as a, as a youth. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think we saw some really beautiful kind of full circle um, on, to, on the issue of immigrant rights. We've really seen the resurgence of, um, you know, all of these young people who came up during the, during the uh, Pete Wilson years and um, now are in positions of power and are able to advocate for immigrant rights. And that's exactly where California should be right now. And I think um, we're doing the same on 209. We're really saying, um, you know, okay, the state tried this policy of so-called race neutrality, but obviously we, we are in a, um, a state and a nation of incredible um, inequality and we have to do, we have to be active to remedy that. Um, although it's not directly related, I really see the way that the COVID pandemic has played out as, you know, such a vivid illustration of um, how much race and class matter. And the fact that, um, you know, those, the illnesses and deaths and workplace exposures um, have been so much more severe in the Latino and Black communities. Um, and, you know, the quality of health care that they receive has not been as good, that the underlying health conditions are worse because they don't have access to good health care. And then, of course, so many are um, not just essential workers, but low-wage workers who work at places that, um, you know, don't prioritize worker health and safety. And I think that has been such a vivid, um, you know, illustration of what we face. It's absolutely time for us as a state to try to do more to take on structural racism. You know, and uh, to interject for our listeners, we actually did a, an entire discussion at our recent uh, online conference webinar, I guess you would call it, uh, about the COVID-19 pandemic. And we did an entire panel discussion uh, about health equity and about those exact issues. So if anyone listening to this podcast right now uh, is interested in that issue, I urge you to go back a few episodes and look for our podcast that's on health equity exactly. We broadcast yeah. that episode or broadcast that entire panel discussion as an episode of the podcast. And but the uh, speakers were very informative. So. Mm -hmm. This is called a shameless plug, but we like to do shameless plugs at Capital <laughs> Weekly, so that's fine. No, the shameless plug is Capital Weekly is a 501c3 nonprofit, and if you like what you're hearing, you can, I'm getting my uh, Capital Public Radio uh, voice on. So, uh, but yes, you can donate too. So, and you know, um, going back, one of the thing uh, something you said a little earlier, you mentioned that there has been a long decline in union membership that has gone back decades, but. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've read 
that very, in the very recent past, like in the last couple of years, that has started to turn around and we're actually seeing increases in unionization and that the declines are actually starting to turn around. Is that true? And can you talk about, about why that might be happening? Or Absolutely. Yeah, I think that particularly here in California, we have seen... Um, we have seen a bit of a turnaround there and you know I want to be clear as you've mentioned I have I have worked as an organizer and been in the labor movement for God a long time about a little over 20 years now Um, it is not for lack of workers wanting to be in a union Uh, it is it is you know the the, um, one of the major reasons that we've seen the decline in union density, in addition to some of the things that I raised earlier around kind of the way that business has been structured to um, to make it harder for workers to organize and make it less clear who the boss is and who's responsible, um, is the use of so-called union avoidance tactics or union busting. Um, you know, there has been a lot of research about the growth of this industry of anti-union consultants and the role that they have played in um, really um, terrifying workers out of exercising their right to be in a union. Um, so we saw this trend, um, you know, increase, and, and there there has been research about how prevalent it is in union organizing campaigns. Then you add to that, um, you know, for so many immigrant workers these threats tie into their immigration status. And that has been used very effectively by um, the bad guys, the bad employers. Not all bad, not all employers are bad, of course, but some are, are quite bad and use these kinds of threats about immigration status and, you know, threats to call ICE, um, threats to check everybody's paperwork and, and go after workers uh, who may not have the right documents. Um, they have used these very effectively against workers in some of the most oppressive conditions um, who most need a union and and have fought for one but have been um, you know uh, subject to these kinds of threats um, if they are seen as associating with the union or supporting a union so I think that's an, an important piece are we seeing a, a reversal of that yes at all, or sorry is that- that's the context the reversal Absolutely. I think I get kind of in keeping with some of these other fights that we talked about around 15 and 16. I think that, um, you know, there is clearly a sense. I mean, you look at the, the numbers in the presidential primary here in California, the incredibly broad support for Bernie Sanders, who ran very clearly on a message of, you know, inequality. Um, I think that that is that is something that has resonated with so many workers, this sense of the fundamental unfairness of this economy, um, where workers have to juggle multiple jobs to get by. And yet, you know, companies setting aside COVID companies have have been seeing, you know, maximum profits, record profits at the same time that workers are suffering so much. And so we have certainly seen a resurgence. Um, you know, we've had some very inspiring campaigns here in California. Uh, child care workers, uh, a huge number of child care workers won, won the right um, to join a union last year. And that was a great infusion into our movement. I think um, the fast food, the fight 
for 15 fast food campaign, while it hasn't yet created a, a huge group of union members, has been, you know, key in winning um, minimum wage increases and local local minimum wage increases. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there has been an uptick as workers, I think, really see the, the fundamental unfairness in this economy. Uh, Caitlin, do you, is the uptick both private employers and public, uh, excuse me, private employees and public employees, or is the uptick in uh, unionization more public than private? I know the private sector has always been a hard nut to crack. I think that's exactly right. I think I think um, in the private sector, it's that is where we see uh, the most aggressive of the anti-union tactics. Um, you know, and uh, so I would say some of the gains have been more in the public sector than in the private sector. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of really inspiring um, organizing campaigns, um, but oftentimes there is so much retaliation, workers getting fired, workers getting punished for supporting the union, that they're not ultimately able to win a union election. And part of that goes to, um, you know, how hard even even um, assuming an employer isn't breaking the laws, the laws um, do create an environment that is makes it very hard for workers uh, to win union recognition. So that even where um, they win an election, an employer can refuse recognition, or um, you know, oftentimes workers have a majority of support and demonstrate that support, but the law doesn't require that the employer recognize the union just because they demonstrate majority support. Actually, the public sector, they do um, recognize the union based on a showing of majority support. In the private sector, they require workers to go through an election process um, that can be long and drawn out and allow for uh, quite vicious anti-union campaigns to impact um, the workers. Uh, Caitlin, just one last question. We, we talked a little bit earlier about, um, about the original Proposition 13 and the efforts this year, Proposition 15, to change it. Uh, as, all, as long as I've been in Sacramento, people have talked about wanting to change Proposition 13. They've been unable to do it, and it was called sort of the third rail in California, much like Social Security has been described that way uh, nationally. You touch it and you die. Do you think this is the year that I do. Proposition actually, Proposition 13 gets changed? Yeah, I really do. I really do think that there's been kind of a change in consciousness. Um, I think that, you know, uh, this this sense that um, the, the resources are not being shared in a way that benefits the majority of Californians, um, that we see too much concentration of wealth, and that we want to be able to afford... I mean, we, you know, again, to raise the, the COVID crisis, which I think has exposed so many of the underlying problems that we've been um, living with for a long time, um, you know, to, to not have the money to ensure that schools are equipped with the right ventilation to make sure that, you know, um, they're safe for kids to return to, uh, to not have the money to ensure that um, we have access to uh healthcare for all Californians that's affordable and, you know, no one has to worry about the cost of a COVID test coming back. Like, we need to be able to meet people's basic needs to have a safe and healthy society. And um, all we see is, uh, you know, 
the rich getting richer and things not really working for the rest of us. And so I feel like after all these years, this really is a different debate. And um, I think that I think that the polls demonstrate that uh, the public wants wants the wealthy to pay their fair share so that we can have safe and healthy communities um, for everybody. Great. Caitlin Vega, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Uh, that was a great discussion. Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. And this is John Howard saying thank Thanks you for so joining us. Thanks so much for us, having me. And we'll see you next time around.